Hello, I'm Bill Whalen, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, and I'd like to welcome you back to the Hoover Book Club, where we bring Hoover Fellows and friends together to discuss their latest writings. Our guest today is Russ Roberts, the John and Jean Denault Research Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. Russ is the founder of the award-winning Econ Talk podcast, past guests including Milton Friedman and numerous other Nobel Prize winners, historians, novelists, philosophers, and business leaders. All the 850-plus episodes remain available free of charge at econtalk.org, making Russ's podcast the best bargain you will find on the internet. In 2021, Russ Roberts moved to Israel to become president of Shalem College in Jerusalem. That is Israel's first liberal arts college, by the way. You should go online and check it out. It's amazing what is being done there. He joins us today to discuss his latest book, Wild Problems, A Guide to Decisions That Define Us. President Roberts, it's a delight to see you. Good to see you. It's good to see you. Now, when you're a president, do you just have all kinds of trappings to the office? Do you have a do you have a, a scepter and an orb? Do we have to call you Mr. President? Uh, how are you enjoying this? Well, the Hebrew word for my in my title is nasi, which is president, but it could also be translated as chief or chief. Um, you know tribal leader. I I'm, I'm really I like chief, but uh, and I don't have a band. There's no hail to the chief when I walk around campus, but that's life. You got to you got to that accept your shortcomings. Very good. Uh, well, Russ, let's begin this conversation with your decision to pull up stakes from America and go to Israel. And you and your wife, I should add, by the way, this is a mutual decision. You, as yeah. a wise wise man, consulted the wife on this. Uh, not just the challenge of running a liberal arts college in the Middle East, but what prompted you to make this choice? Because I think what you're getting at here, Russ, this for you was a genuine, bona fide, wild problem. Yeah, by a wild problem, I mean a problem where the standard techniques you might use to assess the pros and cons, data, some kind of algorithm, some kind of ranking system are not really that helpful. The examples I use in the book are whether to get married, who to marry, whether to have children, or in my case, whether to make a radical uh, move to a foreign country where they don't speak the language that you know well, and uh, you suddenly have a new set of responsibilities you don't have a lot of experience with. Uh, So in this case, I've been to Israel a number of times. I'm well aware that many people would say that living somewhere is different from visiting. I didn't really fully appreciate how different it is to live here in Israel than it is to visit. I visited Israel many times before I made this move, and um, I knew it wouldn't be quite the way it is when you're a tourist. And it turned out that's very true. You find yourself suddenly immersed in a Middle Eastern culture, uh, and it's very challenging, and it's very exhilarating, and it's very exciting. But when I was facing this decision in advance, my claim in the book is that these kind of decisions are not made usually by weighing the day-to-day pleasure and pain, what I call narrow utilitarianism, the costs and benefits of what daily life will be like. Now, there's a view that says, well, daily life is all there is. Your your days are just the accumulation of the pleasures and pains you experience in life. But I think that's the wrong way to think about it. In particular, as I say in the subtitle, Decisions like these define us. They define who we are, how we see ourselves, and what we might become. And I took this job not because I thought it would be fun or rewarding, although it is occasionally fun and rewarding, as is living here. But I took the job because I thought it was something I was meant to do. It was something I thought would express deeply the things I care deeply about. 
education, uh, human flourishing, the life well lived, which is the focus of this place, uh, Shalem College, in a country that I care about, Israel. Mm-hmm. And uh, those rewards are very different when I was a full-time fellow at Hoover. I'm still a fellow, yes. but my life is a lot, the variance in my day-to-day experience is a lot wider than it was at Hoover. And that's um, part of the excitement and part of the challenge of a, of a wild problem. You, you don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. And it's about a lot more than the daily experience. So, Russ, you're an economist. You are trained to think logically. You are trained to process data. So how does one think logically and process data when one is confronting a wild problem? So I th- some people misunderstand my claim in this mm-hmm. book. I- I'm very skeptical about the application of data to these kind of problems. Mm-hmm. So an example would be, um, are people who are married with children happier than people who are single? Mm-hmm. And you'd think maybe that would be useful in trying to assess whether you should get married and whether you should have children. Mm-hmm. I would argue that's not the right way to think about that decision. And even if it were, it's kind of hard to put a number like one to five on how happy you are when you have uh, a three-year-old or a 13-year-old or a 23-year-old. And life's a little more complex than that. So although I am uh, trained in data analysis and, and various aspects of, of um what it's called econometrics. Mm -hmm. I don't think those tools are the right tools for these kind of questions. And when I say that, people say, oh, so you're irrational. You just think you should go with your gut. Mm -hmm. And um, as the neuroscientist recently explained to me, your gut's really good for dissolving certain kinds of food with the acids in your stomach. It's not your gut you use when you make uh, decisions. Your intuition actually comes from the back of your brain which accumulates a lot of experience. And that's what you're really relying on when you say, well, I I had an intuition this would be good for me or had an intuition it was a good investment. And I just, I went with my intuition rather than my gut. Um, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. I think when people talk about intuition, they are drawing on their past experience. That's really not what you're doing when you make a decision in the face of a wild problem. What I suggest you should think about rather than analytically trying to assess how happy you're going to be uh, when you face a choice like this is to Mm -hmm. see your life more as a journey, Mm -hmm. to see your role in that journey as more like an artist, and to think of what you might aspire to be rather than what you are right now. I mean, economics is the the so-called science. I don't think it's much of a science. It's more of an art. Yes. To the extent that it's treated like a science, it's a mathematical problem in how to get the most out of life, uh, how to maximize your well-being given the constraints of finite income and finite time. And I would suggest that's not a very healthy way to live. Might not be the worst way to think about analyzing human behavior writ large, but I wouldn't import that directly into one's daily life. I think that's a mistake. There are too many things you can't anticipate. There are too many things that are about, as I said, more than just how happy or pleasant, pleasant some outcome is going to be. And a lot of what I think life is about is aspiring, is is trying to become someone. In economics, you take your preferences as given, is the saying. Well, maybe you should change your preferences. Maybe you should become a a different person. Maybe you should care about some things you don't care about now. It's about growth. Uh, Economics is not good at those kind of issues. So I think it often leads us astray if we try to apply it too intently 
to our personal lives. Russ, having done over 850 uh, Talk podcasts, you are obviously very comfortable at asking questions to people, posing questions to people. I'm not sure how comfortable you are talking about yourself, though, so we're going to turn the tables here a little bit. Let's look a little bit more at the life of Russ Roberts, and without talking too much about yourself, let's just talk about a couple of moments in your life where you had to deal with a wild problem and briefly explain how you did it. So you mentioned you mentioned the uh, job, uh, the career shift to Israel. What about marriage? How did you process marriage? Oh, well, I hadn't read my book yet. So I had, I was like the rest of us. I was a, you know, a young and foolish uh, person when it came to that. Uh, a little more seriously, uh, I married late. I married at uh, 34. And I, I'm really glad I did. It turned out very well for me. I'm still married. I've been uh, married for 34 years, which is um, wonderful. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people, when they face a challenge like that, did what I often did when I was younger, which was I procrastinated. I put off any decision because I convinced myself, oh, if I only had more information, I knew this person better. I, you know, I'd, it, I'd make a better decision. Right. And I think we, that sometimes is true, of course. But often it's an excuse for just not making a decision and your fears of the consequences of how a decision might, you know, make you feel or make the other person feel. So, uh, you know, I don't think I'm a very good case study for that, that particular challenge. Um, I will say something about having children, if you'd like, though. Well, I get to children in a second. So let's do it this way. Okay. Now, the benefit of having written this book now, if you can go back in time, how would 30-something Russ Roberts approach both the issue of marriage and the issue of children? Um, well, I got married and had children in an era, uh, the 90s and the yes. late 80s, when uh, people didn't treat these decisions the way they do now. I think it's uh, one of the reasons I wrote this book is that I think the current generation of 20-year-olds, 20 20-somethings, 20 views these as real choices, um, whether to get married, whether to have children, whereas for most of human history, those were not really anything people agonized over. Right. Uh, you got married if you could, if you could find somebody who would take you. Uh, you might debate who it was. Uh, Jane Austen obviously got a lot of mileage out of that. But you certainly expected or tried to get married. Right. And once you were married, of course, you had children. And I opened my book with a conversation with a friend who's trying to decide whether they have children or not. And he's doing a cost benefit analysis of that and tells me he can't, he and his wife can't decide whether the costs outweigh the benefits. Mm -hmm. And I suggested to him that you know, maybe that isn't the right way to think about a decision like this, which was in some ways the genesis you know, of this book. One of the themes, thinking back to my younger self, uh, one of the themes of the book, which I drew on a book by the Yale philosopher L.A. Paul in her book, Transformative Experiences, mm -hmm. she observes that when you make decisions like this, it changes who you are, which makes the whole idea of rationality somewhat problematic. Uh, a friend of mine says um, his dad would tell him that until you get married, you're an idiot. And uh, there's some truth to that. I think marriage uh, made me a a wiser person. And I would say, so it changed me in, in ways I didn't anticipate, but nothing like the way becoming a parent did. Becoming a parent uh, changes what how you think about life. It changes how you think about art. Right. I watched movies differently once I had children. Uh, 
you suddenly think a minivan is a really fine example of an automotive choice. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of things that change once you have children. And um, trying to anticipate those, I would say, is pretty much impossible. And um, whether it's going to be fun or not is not the reason to have kids, because a lot of the times it's not fun. And right. but it's a it's a it's a richer, more interesting life, I find, as a parent, if you're blessed to be one. There have also been societal changes. We don't frown upon people now being in their 30s and 40s and unmarried as we might have, you know, attaching unfortunate names like spinster and things like that yeah. to it. But also technology, Russ, there is now possible to, you know, achieve fertility in one's 40s, thanks to IVF and other technologies. Yep. But let's talk about technology for a second, Russ, because we're in an age now where technology is doing more and more of our thinking for us, artificial intelligence. If I want to drive from point A to point B here in California, my uh, my app can tell me the quickest way to go. My car navigation will tell me how to go, or I can decide how I want to go. If I want to come visit you in Israel, I will go on my app uh, for my airline, and it will not tell me what flights to take, Russ, but it will highlight what it thinks the best flights are. So the question is, as we're dealing with wild problems and other problems in life, how much do we surrender to technology and let essentially technology do our thinking for us? Well, I think that's one of the reasons the problems I'm talking about, these wild problems are so unpleasant for a modern person. Uh, technology helps us in so many ways make those decisions. Uh, as you say, it'll tell you how to get from um, you know, Palo Alto to Sacramento as quickly as possible. Of course, it doesn't tell you where they should go to Sacramento. And that's what, one of the things I think is, is really what's fun about life, not just yes. challenging. But I suggest that in the book that since we're so used to relying on algorithms and apps and technology for many of the decisions we make, when we come to one where those tools are not so useful, we find it very frustrating. And I think part of the reason young people today find these challenges so difficult is that they don't have an app to help them make those decisions. Uh, we have to, we're in uncharted territory as, as I, as I would argue. Um, I will say uh, that, there's a new application of artificial intelligence. Uh, it's called Chat GBT mm -hmm. that is mind blowing. Uh, and I think it's going to totally upend uh, the way we interact with each other in all kinds of unpredictable ways. Uh, and it's going to be a technology that people rely on. Uh, it's just one more aspect of life where, that we're going to seed, C E D E, seed to technology and say, you take care of this. Um, for fun, I asked it today whether to how to send an invitation to someone to a party I was going to throw where I wasn't sure they wanted to come. It wrote a magnificent invitation in two seconds that I could not have done better. That ability and the ability to figure out whether it was done with AI versus by the person themselves, the fact that you can't tell the difference is going to be really interesting in the years to come. I think there's going to be a lot of things that we're going to give over to those kind of uh, tools. But President Roberts, you are running a university where you're asking young men and women to write papers and think critically. And isn't there a danger here of technology doing their dirty work for them? Yeah, there is. If there's not a good, uh, if you're not having uh, real education. So if right. you're, if you're, if you're running a course, that's basically, I'm going to tell you some things you write them down, and then later I'll ask you about them, and I might ask you to write a short paper about it. These kind of technologies are going to be very good for fooling uh, faculty for a while. They'll catch on. Right. Uh, there'll, there'll be 
there will be uh, ways to, um, I think there'll be kind of an arms race between the faculty and the students on, on trying to see what's uh, real and what isn't. But I do think it's an important point you're making about what education is for. Yes. Uh, historically, his education used to be about character, the building of character, somewhere along and, and the acquisition of, of what we would call wisdom. Somewhere along the line, it became about credentials and the acquisition of a piece of paper that opened doors for you. And of course, there's some somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. Study the certain things in, in college at a great university like Stanford, you right. do actually learn something. But it's other places and maybe even some departments at Stanford, mm -hmm. it's a little bit of a spit back parroting exercise rather than a personal growth experience. Uh, here at Shalem College, we try to explore the great texts and questions of the West and of Jewish thought in small seminars, uh, in fearless open inquiry, believing that that experience, doing that with a, with a group of, of peers under the guidance of an exceptional teacher who is not a lecturer, but rather uh, one of the better students in the room, makes all the difference. And in that kind of setting, uh, artificial intelligence isn't going to help you, uh, at least at this current current level of technology. It's not going to speak for you. It's not going to um, uh, help you answer those questions in conversation with your peers. And I, I believe deeply that that is um, a lost and, and incredibly powerful form of education. And we're trying to keep it alive here. Uh, it's um, it's dead in most of the United States and certainly most of the rest of the world. I have uh, three observations about your book, Russ. Number one, um, it reads beautifully. You write the way you speak in this. Thank a lot you. of academics don't do this. They struggle writing versus speaking. It's thick. Uh, this book is very easy to read. It's very delightful to read. So congratulations on that. Secondly, it was like reading a very thoughtful commencement address. And I think one of the tragedies in modern day America is there are a few, very few commencement addresses that really are kind of thoughtful. So many are just kind of riddled with cliches or they're promoting agendas, but this offers important life lessons. But the third one is I think we have a window into Russ Roberts. And then if I ask Russ Roberts who would be at his dinner table, um, I think I found some figures who might show up. And let me ask you about each one of these who appear in your okay. book. Number one is Charles Darwin. You seem to have a real fascination with Darwin. Yeah, I hope it earlier on in the book, I talk about a really remarkable thing, which is that we have Darwin's journal from when he was a 29-year-old trying to decide whether to get married, and he makes yes. a list of the pluses and minuses. And uh, the, the, there are a couple of things that jump out at you when you look at that list. First is that the minuses outweigh the, outweigh the benefits, the, the pluses. It's clear that based on what he's written, he should not get married. He was He's very worried he's going to maybe have to leave London because his wife won't like it. He's worried he's, he's going to have children who die from disease, and that's going to be a real downer. And most of all, he's worried he won't be able to do his scientific work. He'll be entertaining her relatives. Ends up, he ends up marrying a cousin. So her relatives are mostly his relatives, I assume. But um, what's fascinating about the list is what it doesn't include. Obviously, there's no R-rated thoughts in there because he's writing uh, in the 19th century. Right. But the more interesting thing to me is that he has no idea about what is good about marriage. Uh, he's clueless. And when you stop to think about it, it makes sense. He's never been married. He may have married friends, but 
he probably doesn't ask them a lot about what that experience is like. And even if he did, they would struggle to um, convey what what it's like to live with someone for a long period of time and share the right. journey of life with someone you you love. And so there's nothing in his <laughs> there's nothing in his list about that that idea that he's going to be with another person, you know, other than that she'll be around to talk to him when he comes home from work, calls it chit chat on the couch. Um, And then he says better than a dog anyhow, which uh, would cause him to be canceled in 2022 for sure. I'm not sure I'd show that to my future wife, by the way, instead of comparing her to a dog. But what, what Darwin gets at Russ is that he's afraid that if he gets married, he ceases to be Charles Darwin. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to say it. And of course it's true. He becomes Charles Darwin, the husband, right? rather than Charles Darwin, the bachelor. And Charles Darwin, the husband, is a a very different person. He has different uh, cares, different concerns, different obligations. Um, But he finds out that it's actually a pretty good deal. And what's fun is we we have his autobiography. We have his thoughts long after he's been married for a long period of time, Mm -hmm. after he's been married for a long period of time. And... um, he mostly likes it a lot. He finds out that he enjoys being, say, read to by his wife every night. And uh, he finds parenting deeply rewarding, even though there's tragedy in his life, uh, as he anticipated and worried about. And But that's a beautiful thing. Uh, in contrast, I give the example of Franz Kafka, who looks at the list. Like Darwin's, it's pretty clear he's worried it's going to ruin his work. This is his, in this case, his literary work, not his scientific work. and. Um, he never marries. He has a woman he's in love with. The complicated person, to be honest, it's a little more complicated than I'm probably than he than we know from his diary. But um, he doesn't marry, and he stays Franz Kafka. Uh, and the, he's that's the Kafka we know. Darwin, the scientist, turns out pretty well. Uh, you know, you, it'd be hard to argue he he'd have been a better scientist if he'd stayed single. It is always possible, but. A pretty good scientist as a husband, given that he's a husband. The second individual at the Russ Roberts dinner table, I'd argue, would be Benjamin Franklin, who shows up prominently in this book as well. Franklin fascinates me on a lot of, a lot of levels, Russ, one of which is his faith. He was uh, a deist, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I believe that in, uh, this is very uh, popular intellectual pursuit in America in the late uh, 18th century. Deists believe, essentially, correct me if I'm wrong here, God set the universe in place, and then God essentially stepped out of your day-to-day life and your day-to-day decisions. So explain why Benjamin Franklin uh, is so prominently noted in this book. Yeah, so he comes in in Darwin's uh, decision. Darwin makes this list of pros and cons, and and Franklin had had a friend uh, who had a similar challenge, a big crisis about whether to take a, a, uh, to, to take a patron, someone who was going to uh, help him out. Right. And uh, Franklin says, here's what you do in this situation. You make a list of the pros, a list of the cons, and then you look at them and you see which ones are of the same magnitude and you cross them out. So you might have a pro and two cons are roughly the same. So you cross out those. And then finally, you'll be left with either lots of pros or lots of cons, in which case you'll know what to do. That's what Franklin says. And he is a fascinating person. He's a great scientist, yes. uh, a great diplomat. Uh, evidently a really pleasant person to hang out with and have a drink with. Uh, but that technique, I suggest in the book, is maybe not so effective for wild problems. It, it may be good for some kind of decisions, but how do you cross out or weigh uh, greatest scientist of all time, 
against, uh, well, at least there'll be someone at home when I get there. Uh, or, you know, not fulfilling a piece of my life I anticipated being a husband and a father versus being a great scientist. You know, Darwin ends up getting married despite the list. And we have his paragraph of stream of consciousness where he kind of yells at himself and says, what am I thinking? I'll be alone. I'll get old. It'll be awful. Marry, 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 he says. And he decides to get married, even though his calculus is Franklinian calculus from Benjamin is not, doesn't work out. He does it a different way. He ignores what his what his apparent list says. And I think it's because he wants to be someone. He wants to be Charles Darwin, the parent, Charles Darwin, the husband. Uh, he wants to define himself differently, and he's not so concerned with the day-to-day costs and benefits. Okay, Russ, we're not going to make your dinner table decidedly more attractive. I'm adding to the dinner party Penelope, the wife of Odysseus. Mm. Uh, First of all, it'd be fascinating to see if she really exists. It would answer a lot of instant questions about what happened uh, way back when. But why Penelope and why does she get mentioned in your book? So I'm a big fan of um, the oh. Odyssey, particularly the recent, fairly recent translation by uh, Fagels. Uh, it's a phenomenal translation. I read it to my um, my children. I think I read it to them when they were 10, 12, 8 years old because it's so cinematic. Yes. Uh, it's so riveting. And you have to explain some things now and then, but it's a fantastic read. And the Penelope part of the story I find deeply moving. Uh, So Penelope is under siege. Uh, Her husband, uh, Odysseus, sometimes called Ulysses, same guy, has been away at the Trojan War and then got waylaid and struggled to get home. And 20 years have gone by, and it looks like he's not coming back. So 108 people take residence in her, a palace and suggest that they would make good replacements for Odysseus. Mm-hmm. And um, she has to decide what to do. And what she actually does is she says, well, I'm knitting a funeral shroud for my father-in-law, who's alive, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, it turns out uh, it's it just really hard. I learned this from Virginia Postrel in her book on fabrics and textiles. It's really hard to make fabric uh, thousands of years ago. He couldn't just go down and buy a funeral shroud. So I think he made him in advance. Mm. Uh, That was a bit macabre, but in a way, very loving. So she's, she's making this funeral shroud in case he dies. And um, she says to the suitors, you know, when I finish it, I'll pick one of you. And each night famously, she unravels whatever she knitted. So she makes no progress suggesting that the average, um, Greek suitor of her day knew as little about knitting and uh, fabric as as I do. They didn't seem to notice, but anyway. But Rush, but uh, Rush, she's playing for time. So correct. How she's is she trying to? How is she trying to solve her wild problem? Because she's just kicking the can down the road. If you ask she's me, kicking the can down the road because she's hoping unrealistically mm-hmm. that her husband is still alive, who she loves. Right. Of course, he is. He comes back disguised as a beggar. But what I do in the book is I ask the question. What if she had to choose between one of the 108? What would be the right algorithm right. Uh, for doing that? And it turns out there's actually something of a mathematical proof of what she might do if she wanted to marry the best of the 108. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a silly exercise. I use it to illustrate the challenges of making the best decision because the best is very ill-defined in a choice like this. It's a multifaceted problem, picking a spouse, 
almost everyone has pluses and minuses relative to someone else. You can always find someone who's kinder, smarter, prettier, uh, more interesting to talk to, more easygoing, funnier. And yet to find one who has all those things is all, is almost impossible. Uh, so what do you do? How do you choose when you have uh, a person who's got a big mix of pluses and minuses and, oh, I'll just find the best one. I'll wait till the best one comes along. And so I, I kind of, my goal is to make it easier for the reader to make a leap and uh, marry someone or pick someone because that whole idea is just such a bad way to think about getting married. And yet I think it's the way we often conceptualize the problem. So I'm trying to give people a little different approach to it. Russ, do you know how much content is on TV these days with regards to this? There is The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, 90 Day Fiance, Love at First Sight, the list goes on. All the idea that you could just sort of fast track this process. And I don't know if this is really a function of just we want to watch people make spectacles of themselves on television or not. But it does kind of raise this question about the decision making and about how to deal with the wild problem. And at least on television, your wild problem finds it, you know, solves itself. I meet somebody I fall in love with first sight, or I hand somebody a rose and we just fall in love. In other words, nature takes its course. (laughs) I am fascinated as to why that motif is so popular. I don't write about this in the book, but yeah. uh, most movies, it, I like to point out that My Fair Lady, one of the reasons it's a great, great musical mm-hmm. is it's an actual portrait of falling in love. Yes. It's two people who are from very different backgrounds, right. who have little or no respect for each other. And despite this, through their interactions and conversations, uh, literally fall in love. And very few works of art on the screen capture that. Instead, it's, I looked across the room and I fell in love. Or she handed me a rose or I handed her a rose and we fell in love. <laughs> and uh, we, for some reason, that appeals to us. Um, and yet, I think in real life, and it does happen in real life, I, we hear from, you know, occasionally, anecdotally, I, I've heard that that's the case. But, you know, most people don't see a person across the room and decide, that's the person I'm going to marry. And um, that's good. But yes. it's interesting that our art uh, wants us to aspire to that as an ideal, that the idea of, say, My Fair Lady, which is very rare, is an ideal, is I think it's very uncommon. And so uh, that's an interesting question. I don't have an answer to it, but I, it's an observation. Well, you just got to watch a lot of bad TV, I think, to get the answer to that, Russ. But let's round out your dinner table now with uh, someone who's uh, uh, featured prominently in a past book of yours, and that would be Adam Smith. Why Adam Smith? And did Adam Smith really change your life? Uh, well, you're referring to my last book uh, before this one, which is How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. And yes. certainly after I read The Theory of Moral Sentiments, Adam Smith's uh, lesser known work, uh, one that isn't uh, an inquiry into the nature and cause of the wealth of nations, Theory of Moral Sentiment is a fascinating book about our interactions with each other, why we do good things, why we care, uh, how our circle of friends influences us and vice versa. It's an incredibly thoughtful book of morality and and human psychology, what makes us tick. Um, And I bring him into this book for the following reason. I suggest that in addition to the pleasure and pain that any decision causes us, there are all these, these deeper questions of meaning and purpose and what is sometimes called human flourishing or eudaimonia in the Greek. Give this podcast a little air of uh, fake sophistication, if that's okay, Bill. Um, 
and Aristotle illusion is always good. Yes. Anyway, Smith Smith has, I think, a, a profound insight into our, our psychology when he notes the following. He says, probably my favorite line from, from the theory of moral sentiments, man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. Mm-hmm. Basically, what that means is it's not about just physical romantic love. It's about being, he's saying that human beings want to be appreciated. They want to be honored. They want to be respected. That's they want to be loved, but not just that, says Smith. They also want to be lovely. They want to, they want to be worthy of respect, worthy of praise, worthy of honor. And we want to matter. So what Smith is saying there. And then Smith says something very profound. He says, there are two ways to matter. There are two ways to be loved, to be a source of attention, to be have people attend to you and, and notice you. One is to pursue fame, wealth, or power. Right. Uh, those things are what everyone looks up to in the real world. Um, it's it's nothing has changed since Smith's time, and it goes back uh, millennia. We like the rich, powerful, and famous. And Smith says, "You walk into the room." I my you know my joke is if I'm lecturing on Adam Smith, and uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie walk into the room, nobody's looking at me anymore. I don't care how interesting I am. I don't care if they say nothing. Every eye will be on them. They want to know. People want to know what they wear, what they think, what they're eating. Mm-hmm. I'm irrelevant. Uh, the second way, though, Smith says, to get attention and to matter and to be worthy of love and, and respect is mm-hmm. to be wise and virtuous. Right. And then he says the, the profound part. He says, it's very seductive, money, fame, power. Those things draw us because they are the glittering path to being attended to, to mattering and for people to pay attention to us. He said, but the Wisdom and virtue, that's the quiet path. You can have a smaller group. The other, you got a mob. Here, you got a small group. Smith, of course, followed the wisdom and virtue, and he earned the respect of David Hume and his best friend. And for him, that was more important than being uh, adored by the masses. Now, it turns out Smith got his share of fame and a little bit of wealth, not much power, but a little bit. Uh, as he got older, but his advice is very profound. And I what I argue in, in this book, Wild Problems, is that taking Smith to heart and thinking about how we want to live and who we want to become is a better way of thinking about these kind of choices than asking whether they'll be fun or not, whether they'll lead to pleasure or pain. Yes, pleasure and pain are not irrelevant. They are important, but they are not often the most important piece of the calculus. And uh, Smith gives us a little help in thinking about that. So how would Smith process today's society, Russ, in this regard? Thanks to technology now, anyone and everyone can have a voice. And depending on how notorious you want to be, how infamous, how outrageous you want to be, you can get noticed and you can get tens and tens of thousands of followers on Twitter um, and become famous. And you can also become lucrative if you become, say, an influencer on Instagram, if you will. But you haven't really done anything to achieve that fame and achieve that fortune. So how would Smith process this whole concept? Well, I think the part that Smith has has a lot to say about is the urge we have for dopamine, for thrills, for being adored, uh, the pursuit of likes, followers, those kind of things. Smith was very clearly in his book warning you against that, that that's a fool's game. It will draw attention to yourself if you mm-hmm. do things that draw those followers. 
But he's saying to you, you have an impulse in that direction. Be aware of it. And I think that's really good advice. Um, what was the second part of your question? Well, just how he would process the idea of people going on Twitter these days and just how he oh. would make sense of the idea. Because what you're getting at is really reward without work. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, but Frank, writing, offering banal thoughts on Twitter and just holding up products with a camera, that's really not work at the end of the day. It's not really sweat equity. Well, I disagree a little bit in that oh, okay. uh, if you offer banal thoughts on Twitter, you won't get very many followers. You have mm -hmm. to offer either outrageous thoughts or deeply thoughtful and provocative thoughts. Right. And I think Smith would like the, the latter. He wouldn't care much for the former. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he'd recognize that that's a, a bad way to go. But, you know, I think I'm very active on Twitter, uh, not as active as I was before I had this uh, president's job, but still somewhat right. active on Twitter. And I'm, I'm often surprised at how informative and stimulating intellectually Twitter can be. There's a very dark side of Twitter, absolutely, yes. that Smith would you know, not respect. But as an intellectual marketplace, there's a lot of interesting ideas and, and books and articles that pass through Twitter that I, that I find very stimulating. And I think he would like that. What he would be against is what I what I call the outrage uh, economy, the, ability, the the urge people have to say hateful or, or dark things and draw attention to themselves. And uh, it plays to the worst side of our tribalism. And that part, I think Smith would would uh, would be against. OK, I want to offer uh, throw a couple of terms at you from the book and a couple of slogans. First term in the book, Russ, is vampires. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I got that from the Yale philosopher L.A. Paul. Uh, she calls it the vampire problem, yes. which is that before uh, you become a vampire, it looks repul repulsive. But most vampires are pretty happy uh, once they make the leap. And uh, she uses that really, it's hard to believe, but it's a metaphor for being a parent or getting married or many other choices that we make that often have either it's impossible to go back or it's very costly to return to your original state. Her insight, which is, I think, quite important, is that before you're a vampire, vampiring looks gross. After you're a vampire, being a mortal, a mere mortal, looks uh, pitiful. So in that situation, what's the rational way to think about whether you should become a vampire or not? You could say, well, they all seem pretty happy, uh, so I guess it's okay. Or what I suggest is you might want to bring in some ethical considerations. And even though it might be fun to stay up all night and sleep in a coffin during the day and drink <laughs> blood, and that they seem pretty pretty um, happy, uh, maybe it's just wrong. And so ethical decisions, I suggest, ethical considerations should play a role uh, in, in a life well lived. The uh, Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast, Russ, not too long ago, um, it's delightful to listen to every day. They get into politics. They get into a lot of uh, issues near and dear to a commentary, Israel obviously being one of them. Uh, but for some reason, they did five minutes the other day, Russ, on uh, would you rather be a vampire or a werewolf? <laughs> Interesting pros yes. and cons to both. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And and um, I much prefer Warren Zevon's Werewolves of London to any popular song I can think of about vampires. So. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm a werewolf guy. Okay, so good. Uh, other term that shows in the book is Chesterton's Fence. What is Chesterton's Fence? Uh, so that's um, G.K. Chesterton, the, the British writer, uh, made the observation that sometimes you'll come across a fence in the middle of a field and you'll think, well, this doesn't make any sense. It just gets in the way. I'm taking the shortcut. Tear it down. It's a waste. Get rid of it. 
And he suggests very wisely that many of the things in our lives, our culture, uh, serve a purpose we may not understand. They, their history is quite complex and may not be obvious when we first come across their, um, their existence. And we should tear down fences with some care. Some fences should be torn down for sure, but others serve a purpose that we don't see right away. And when we tear it down, we realize only too late that they were doing something very, very powerful and useful. So uh, it's a very nice metaphor for thinking about social change. Um, or another way to think about it is be careful what you wish for. Sometimes we get policy outcomes that we thought were going to be great, only to discover that they, um, the things we've eliminated had a role to play we didn't understand. So he, okay. he was very wise there. Let's do two slogans now. The first one, be like Bill. Uh, in this case, Bill being Bill Belichick, the New England Patriots football coach. Yeah, I'd use him as an example because he's, in my casual observation, he is very often um, eager to have more draft choices, even though they're not as high quality, yes. uh, rather than having a smaller number of higher higher draft choices. And he'll make trades like that. I think that's a true statement. I didn't mm-hmm. check it empirically, but most people think that's the case. It is. What he'll um, do, Russ, is he'll typically take a late first round pick and he'll trade down for second and third round picks and sometimes trade even deeper. And what he's doing is he's amassing draft picks, but he has confidence in his ability to find talent. Plain and simple. That's the village formula. But not talent ex ante. He, he's aware yeah. of his inability to identify talent in advance, which is why right. he will not often uh, keep a first round draft choice. He'll trade it because he wants to have a bigger denominator. (laughs) He knows that he's not great at picking the best players. And most people aren't, by the way, it's very hard to do. And particularly hard for him because he's interested in how they'll interact in his system. And he can't know that in advance, very much like the marriage challenge. You don't know if you're going to interact well with the person you're with. So what he does is he dates. He brings them in for... Uh, preseason, watches how they interact in his system. And he's famous also for undrafted uh, free agents who come to him that no one wanted. And he finds out actually they're, they're quite effective in his system. So that very specialized knowledge uh, only uh, is only available by experience, having them come and play with, with, the, t- with the team uh, in, in preseasons and then later in the games themselves. And that's a lesson I think that's useful for us in life, which is you want to increase the number of draws you have from the earned, the experiences you have in life, especially when it's relatively easy to change your mind and, and realize you made a mistake. Uh, Bill hires, brings in lots of people mm-hmm. and he cuts a lot of them. Uh, he doesn't keep them all. He can't. He's a fixed, limited roster. And right. it, But it's similarly for us, we don't have an infinite amount of time. So try some things, especially if you can not commit to them. You can check them out and you may find out there are things you like that you only discover because you experience them rather than you read about them or have some other way of finding out about them. And I suggest that that along with travel, uh, travel metaphor is a very good way to think about how we go through life. We, some people build a very specific itinerary for when they go to Rome, but other people explore it. And uh, I would suggest that Trying to build an itinerary for life when you don't know much about it is not the way to go. Let's stick with football in the few minutes we have left on this show, Russ, and that uh, I'd like to draw your attention to Andrew Luck. 
Uh, Andrew Luck is a uh, former Stanford University quarterback. He was a first-round pick in the National Football League. Uh, if ever an individual was designed to play quarterback, it was Andrew Luck. Uh, Russ, his father, Oliver Luck, was a professional football quarterback. Andrew Luck is six feet four, 230 pounds of just pure muscle, has an arm like a cannon, blah, 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 goes on. Andrew Luck's life is just kind of magical for the first 28, 29 years. In this regard, he goes to Stanford. He excels at what he does. He's a prototypical overachieving Stanford kid. He's something of a Renaissance man. He's fascinated with architecture. And we think at all times that Andrew Luck just kind of has the world on a string, to quote Frank Sinatra. And then guess what happens, Russ? Andrew Luck is in chronic pain playing football. He doesn't like the personality he's become as a professional quarterback where he has to be much more of kind of a jerkwater alpha male as opposed to being kind of a get-along guy at Stanford, if you will. And at the age of 29, Russ, he comes to a fork in the road decision that I don't want to play football anymore, which is, of course, hugely disorienting because football is his identity. And he's he's worshipped where he lives, and we all follow sports, and we all idolize athletes. And so it's a shocker that Andrew Luck wants to walk away, much like Sandy Koufax walked away from baseball, by the way, but mm -hmm. he in chronic pain. So a similarity yeah. there. But the question, Russ, and let's end this conversation this way, you're Andrew Luck, and you're trying to figure out what to do with your life at age 29 and what's going on. What does he pick up from reading Wild Problems? Well, it's a really interesting question because I'm pretty sure he was an economics major. Um, and I used to use him as an example of how one outlier can distort the average in a way that the median is not yep. distorted. So the average salary of the econ majors in his graduating class was remarkably high and yes. remarkably <laughs> unrepresentative of any player, any person in that pool. Mm -hmm. uh, he, that one person, pulled up the average a lot. He made a lot more than the average. Everyone else probably made less than the average. And so it wasn't very representative of, of the group. Right. Um, what's also interesting about, it, of course, he didn't just walk away from a sport where he, where he was adulated and adored. Mm -hmm. He walked away from a sport that paid him a great deal of money. Right. I don't know what his alternatives were, but what's beautiful about the story, if putting aside the chronic pain, you're also suggesting it was more than just the fact that he found it physically uncomfortable to play quarterback in the NFL. He right. also was becoming someone that he did not want to become. And that is very much at the heart of my book, that we should think about who we want to become. Yes. That who we are now is not necessarily who we will be. And our choices today determine how we can become something more than ourselves. Um, and so I, I don't know what he's doing right now. Do you? I will end the uh, uh, broadcast uh, on this note. Andrew Luck is now back at Stanford University, and he is pursuing a graduate degree in education. Russ, he wants to become an educator. He wants to teach and maybe coach. And this draws to you. Um, you are an economist, but I think a lot of the work you've done over the years, the the brilliant podcasts, the great, the great videos you've done for Hoover over the years, you like to educate people. And so I think that in many regards, this helps solve your wild problem. Because I think at the end of the day, you decided... I'd like to be an educator. Yeah. Yeah. My identity is, um, is to some extent teacher and I'm proud of it and it makes my heart sing. Yeah. Gives me a lot of, a lot of uh, deep rewards. So at the end of the day, Russ, is it that simple in solving our raw problems? We just have to look inside ourselves or look in the mirror and decide what is it that I want to be? Well, that's hard to figure out. The yeah. book's not a simple manual about how to live. It's trying to get you to think about it in different ways, maybe than you do now. And 
What I argue in the book, and I think this is true, is we don't spend a lot of time on that question. I'm not saying it's an easy question to answer who you mm-hmm. want to be. Uh, I talk about we have many different ways to be self-reflective. We can meditate. We can go into therapy. We can follow religion. We can read great novels. All these things force us to be reflective about who we are and about the experience of life. I think they're all useful, potentially, if done correctly. I think the alternative uh, of not thinking about who you want to be, mm-hmm. it's got its virtues also, you know, Uh Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have colleagues in the philosophy department who will say, eh, a lot of happy people don't examine their life. I'm not sure the unexamined life is not worth living. There, there are a lot of virtues to that. But I think for many of us, um, we want to be thoughtful about who we are and who we might become. And my book is just a reminder to do that in many ways. It's not just um, here's the way to become who you should be. I don't, I don't know the answer to that that's for you to discover on your own, but I would encourage you to think about it. And, um, sometimes that's harder to remember than, than you might think. That's well put. I'd be remiss by the way, if I didn't ask you while I had you, um, as I do right now, you've done 850 econ talks for those on this, uh, watching this who have not listened to econ talk. What is your favorite episode? Oh, that's a tough question. Uh, I have quite a few that I love. Um, there's my conversation with Christopher Hitchens mm-hmm. on Orwell that was right. fairly uh, shortly before he passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a Hoover. He had a Hoover affiliation at the time. Right. And uh, that was a really wonderful conversation. I had the privilege yeah. of yeah, he became very Friedman. He, he became very philosophical and religious as he uh, as he as he approached his death, as I remember. Mm, not so religious. No, no, not so no. religious. Philosophical, very thoughtful. I don't think he ever gave up his atheism. Okay. Um, but he was very thoughtful in when he knew he was going to die. Um, okay. Another episode I love, of, of course, is my interviews with Milton Friedman. And yes. when I first started, they're not very good interviews, but they're still some of my favorites because it was uh, exhilarating to talk to him. Yes. Uh, and I, I may have been the last person to interview him. It was uh, shortly before he passed away. I love the episode about how potato chips get made. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of my favorites. And um, I find most of them interesting. So that's why I keep doing it. If I didn't find them interesting, uh, I stopped long ago. It's a great privilege to be able to ask questions of, of super smart, super interesting people every week for 16 years, uh, going on 17. And um, what a blessing. And Russ, I appreciate your letting us appreciate your letting us turn the tables today and ask questions of you. Uh, the book is fantastic. Congratulations on it, and just keep on doing what you're doing. And I hope you're enjoying Jerusalem. I do, but I miss the Bay Area, and I hope I get back to uh, to the Stanford campus soon and and see friends there. I, I miss all of you. It's um, it's been too long. Good. We'll come back soon, my friend. The title of the book, once again, Wild Problems, A Guide to Decisions That Define Us. You can find it on that website named after a river in South America. We will find all sorts of great books by Russ Roberts. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon again with another installment of the Hoover Book Club. Until then, take care. Thanks for watching. <music>